On episode 196 of the Tennis Files podcast, you'll learn four pro-level strategies to win more matches at the club level using data from over 1 million points with special guest Fabrice Sparrow. Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s-inspired style and cutting-edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high-energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Welcome to the Tennis Files Podcast, bringing you advice from the top minds in tennis to help you improve your game. And now, here's your host, Mirban Iranshad. Hey everyone, this is Mirban Iranshad. Welcome to another episode of the podcast. It's been a long few weeks. I am just about wrapping up the Tennis Summit, Tennis Summit 2021. Uh, it was amazing and we got well over 11,000 people to attend and over 45 plus sessions, like I think 10 or 12 live streams. Pretty awesome. And I've still got a couple more to do, believe it or not. But yeah, we've got a great episode today to give you four pro-level strategies to help you win more matches at the club level with Fabrice Barrow. And I do have a, a forthcoming intro uh, in the next clip, I guess I could say, but it's uh, the full interview uh, with Fabrice about, you know, 50 minutes or so. And I really hope that you enjoy and become enlightened by the strategies that Fabrice will present to you in just a moment. So without further ado, here is my interview with Fabrice Sbarro. Hey, everybody. Welcome to this very exciting conversation on the four pro-level strategies that you can use to win more matches at the club level. And I'm really excited to have Fabrice Sparrow on the, uh, you know, on this conversation. Uh, and Fabrice is just a fantastic mind, uh, has a great story in terms of how uh, he came to be uh, from a coach to a more specifically a, a data uh, analyst. And he's been helping some of the most amazing players on the planet, uh, like Daniil Medvedev, who you've probably heard of, uh, uh, Nicholas Mahout, and, and, and many others. And so I wanted to talk to uh, Fabrice today because he has analyzed, uh, I think, well over a million points at this point. Uh, Yeah, and it's incredible. And, you know, it's really important. You know, I've had other people uh, on interviews before talk about this, like Craig O'Shaughnessy. And uh, it's an innovative way to be able to analyze what is really going on, have concrete data behind uh, what your strategies and tactics are. So uh, Fabrice, I really appreciate you coming on to speak with me. And uh, thanks so much. Thank you. I mean, thank you for inviting me. So... Yeah, anytime, anytime, Fabrice. And so, uh, you know, I think it's really important to get to your uh, story first off. I know that everybody is chomping at the bit to uh, to uh, have the strategies revealed, but I think it this will highlight uh, your story will highlight the importance of of analyzing data. So, if you could kind of just get into that for us, it would be really uh, fascinating to hear about. I mean. I mean, my story about the coach, like the, from the coach to the data analysis. Yeah, ex- exactly. Yeah. 
Okay. Uh, okay. Okay. Perfect. So, um, I started coaching at the end of, at the age of 2021. 20, it became my, my passion from the start. And very early, um, I had this dream of becoming a, a tour coach. Uh, and it was with my own players at that time. So I can say I started with a local project and we reached national level pretty pretty soon with my, my first project with two brothers. And uh, uh, in 2007, I would, I would say, uh, no, I'm even sure, um, somebody introduced me to statistics. It was a French guy called Olivier Soules, and he showed me how to chart a match. And I must say that from that moment, I totally fell in love with uh, charting matches. And I first use it for me as a coach to become a better coach. Um, because, you know, there is something interest, um, important to know is like when you were not a former professional tennis player yourself, it's very difficult to reach, um, to coach or to be on the tour with the best in the world. So I thought at that stage that I needed something extra and stats, um, I liked stats already. And when he showed me how to chart a match, I totally fell in love with it. And I use it for my players. And I use it for many other things like studies and other things. I, I really love the whole package. And so I don't know if I, so from that moment was 2007, I started working with my own players with stats. And in 2014, I started working for small academies uh, at the national level. Um, and I was doing like analysis of the players. Uh, so I started to do a bit more stats uh, than, than before. And, and then my, I mean, I, I go brief, I go briefly, I go short. And then in 2019, I had the chance to, to meet Daniel Medvedev's coach, Gilles Savara, uh, in Montreal. Uh, and we had a trial of a match preparation with stats. And the coach really liked it. And from that moment, I've been working for, with the coach for one and a half year. So in the introduction, you said that I was the statistician of Medvedev, but it's not the case. I just work for the coach. And after that, I started working with Nicolas Mahu. And now this year, I started with Felix Ojaliasim's team and Marie Buskova. So this is briefly my, my, my story. I mean, of course, I, I forgot a couple of things, but this is briefly my story. Yeah, thanks, Fabrice. I appreciate you uh, diving into the story for us. And But, you know, why, why is is data analysis so important? Like, what is it about it? I mean, you, you've spoken about how, you know, your goal is to help uh, athletes reach that extra 1% because that actually mm -hmm, can mm -hmm. make a huge impact. So can you talk about that 1% and why data analysis is so important to help players? Okay. okay. So, so first I need to say that during a lot of years, uh, statistics that no, nobody really cared about it. So, I mean, I've been doing statistics for 14 years, like four to five hours per day. And I, I have to say that during 12 years, nobody really cared about statistics. And now from 2020, 2021, uh, people start to care more and more. So this is first of all to say that this is pretty new, that people are more interested in my work or in statistics, in tennis in general. And second, the 1%, how I explain it is in his career, People like Nadal, 
Federer, Djokovic, they won 54% of the points. And um, a player who is ranked in the top 100, let's say 50 in the world, who would win 50% of the points he played. So between a Federer, Djokovic and Nadal and uh, a player ranked 50, 60, 70 in the world, there, there are only 4% of points difference. So when we, when we are conscious that this is only 4% difference between the greatest and the rest of the top 100, then 1% is, very, is much more than what we think. Yeah. Yeah. No, that, that is just amazing. You know, what when doing some uh, research on you uh, and, and seeing how <laughs> just like <laughs> one or mm-hmm. two percentage point between uh, like, Gasquet. say, example, Gasquet. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Gasquet and then Gasquet. and the top. And uh, that's a lot uh, in terms of rankings and, and uh, prize money and all that stuff. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, so yeah, yeah so I made calculation about that. But I mean, one percent. If you, if you are top ten, one percent means maybe million of dollars. And if you are like hundred and fifty, you can maybe break into the top hundred, and you're gonna earn, I don't know, maybe two two hundred thousand more dollars. So one so percent equals a lot of money. So if if we if we see it this way, I mean that's not the way I like to say it, but if we say it this way, one percent is is a lot, is <laughs> a lot. It's more win, more money, maybe more sponsors. Um, it's much more than what we think. Yeah, for sure. And very similarly, I mean, for the cup players out there, I mean, this can be the difference between putting you at the top of your mm-hmm. uh, level and, you know, at, at the middle or bottom. So uh, Fabrice, yeah, with that, I want to uh, launch into these uh, these pro-level strategies that uh, mm-hmm. that our fellow amateur players can can use at the at their level. So can you uh, introduce yeah. us to the first one? Oh, okay. So, so first of all, I, I need to say that um, I wrote a book about that, but it's in French. Sorry, I don't make this in French. Mm-hmm. And um, there, there are something like 51 strategies that can work from, from the pro players to the amateur level. So, and out of these 51, up, what I call optimizations, I will pick up four that I think are good examples. But these four are just four out of 50 that, that, that we know. So, so I start right now. The first one is the, the serve variation. So what, what I call at, at an amateur level, most of, not most of the time, but many times it happened that the player serve all the time the same spot and he doesn't very well, he serve with the other spot. Like for instance, he serve the T or the white serve on, on, his, on his opponent's backhand and and the pro, this is a strategy that they don't do anymore. If you want to know that the last players doing this kind of strategy were the clay court players like Filippo Valandri or maybe other players, but now in the last 10 years, more or less, everybody's varying well the serve. But at an, at an amateur level, still, I mean, I work also with amateur, still their serve are stereotyped, which means they serve too many times the same spot. So my, my, my first pro, uh, what's it, pro level strategy would be you, you should serve as many wide serve as T serve. And if you have somebody to chart your match, or if you have somebody who can take notes, the difference between the wide and the, and the T serve should not exceed 10%. For instance, 
if you serve uh, 45% wide and 55% tea, this is a difference of 10%. So this is the first advice I can, I can give you is vary your serve and not more than 10% difference between the wide and the tea. And another thing I can say about that is, uh, you, you know, we talk a lot about the body serve, but it turns out that the body serve is the worst service area to serve in single and at the pro level, but also at an amateur level. So me, I, I would recommend to serve as less as you can body serve and to get that strategies to serve as many wide than T serve. And to do so, uh, I, I use with uh, some juniors uh, what I what I call um, a serve plan, which means that on, on the first four serves, you have to serve the four areas. So for instance, wide, wide, T, T. And that's your four first serves of each game. <coughs> Sorry. And then uh, from the fifth point, you can do it again. Or if you feel like you can, you can serve your, your best service areas. So this is more or less my first tip uh, out of the four I'm going to give it today. That's very fascinating, Fabrice, and uh, of course, appreciate that. And that is very interesting. So, I, I mean, basically, when you looked at the data or the data, um, the body serve, like, did that that just ended up losing the most points out of all the, the other types of serves? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Of AC service winner. Uh, I mean, a body serve can, can bother you. But a T-serve or a wide serve can just not bother you, but kill you. Uh, and this is the main difference between the body and the other serve. Is, is the body serve is you, you get less aces service winner on the pro tour. And, it, it, and we, we, we have the same tendency at an amateur level. That's why, <coughs> sorry for that. But that's why, I, I, and also at an amateur level, um, you know, sometimes they're not accurate enough. So they will serve, they will serve body serve any, in any case. So it's better to avoid them because in any case, it, sometimes it's going to come. So it prefer, I prefer to say never serve the body because it's going to come naturally from time to time when you, when you miss one area and focus on the, the wide and the T serve. Thanks for BC. Yeah. I mean, that's definitely true. Uh, you know, I've, I've made the mistake myself and also have experienced the fortunate, uh, uh, aspect of you know the body serve sometimes it's a little bit off and then they they, they um, position a little mm. bit and hit a big forehand and like you know they're more comfortable um, rather than moving them around the the box yeah exactly uh, the bo yeah and and so I guess if so if there's is there a preference toward like is it better to serve a little bit more wide than than t or does it not really matter and you just split it uh for the most part i, I mean the, the the pro they have a tendency to serve a bit more the t on use court and the wide on add court but then some other pro maybe i think like djokovic serve a bit more the slice but most of the pro they, they serve a bit more the t and the wide which means uh, for a right-handed, so the, the the flat serve and all the lefty they have a tendency to serve also with a slice serve the T and the wide serve. So 
I, I cannot say that. I mean, I feel like that um, every player, every player has to know which area, which server area he's good at, and which server area is not good at. So that's why in the surf plan it, we use the first four server at the beginning, and then from the fifth serve you can go to your strength. And I don't think that they are. I mean, some players can, can be better with slice, other one with flat or kick. So it, I think it doesn't really matter. Thanks, Fabrice. So, okay, great. So I guess an, an easy plan, like you said, the service plan is just, uh, you know, for the first four points, you just pick mm -hmm. each each side, uh, you know, uh, T uh, wide, T wide, uh, yeah. in any pattern that you want. And then from there, go for your strength, but then still yeah. probably want to vary it up. Is that kind of the summation of it? Exactly. Yeah. First variation. <clears throat> Second, go to your strength. Got it. Got and it. That, that's, awesome. that's, that's really good. And, and also, I mean, it's important as an amateur that you know yourself. Where are my strengths when I serve? Where are my weaknesses when I serve? This is also something that we, that they have to know. Yeah, for sure. And, and any, like, just overall in your game, you need to know that so you can mm -hmm. apply the, the strengths as much as you can. So uh, yeah. amazing. Uh, any other last thoughts on this one, Fabrice, before we go to the second strategy? Uh, no, no, no. I think I said everything I, I had to say about this uh, first variation. Uh, uh, yes, yes. Maybe one, one last thing. We, 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 were, we are talking about the first serve. On the second serve, at an amateur level, put it in. That's the mm. most important thing. Put your second serve in. And if you feel better in this specific area, like the T, then wide, do it. Because, you know, the ratio of double faults is one of the, is, is even the main key explaining a low second serve one point. So at an amateur level, it's, I think it's the, the point number one explaining a low, first, a low second serve one point. So it, this is for first serve, the variation. On second serve, do what you can. Got it. Yes. Thanks so much for, for covering that second serve. Um, I'm glad you brought that up. Just curious, one last follow-up with that. I, I know, as you said, the priority is to get it in, maybe figure out what is your best second serve here and then mm -hmm. go with that. But is there any, like, say if somebody is a really good second server, you know, then is there any, like, uh, particular side that is uh, most advantageous or is it the same principles? Uh, uh, I mean, most of the second serve... Um, we play with a kick or whatever on the on the rival's back end. But it turned out that somebody like Djokovic again, he very well point body or T. So there are no especially a rule. Everything can work um, as long as it, 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 this is your strength. So uh, I mean the tendency is to go kick to the back end. This is the tendency. But then if you can do other things, do it. And also some people, they got scared if they don't have a good second serve because they go only the slice. I'm talking about right-handed. They go slice to the forehand of the, of the opponent. And, you know, it could also be a good option to go to the forehand. I mean, then it depends. If your serve is too weak, maybe no. But a good slice, if you don't have a good kick on second serve, but only a good slice, go to the forehand. No problem for me. Brilliant. Brilliant. Thanks again, Fabrice. So uh, that's a, a great one. I hope uh, everybody here is taking notes on this. Uh, and I mean, I'm personally excited to, uh, to, to 
think about my serve like this and vary it up and keep the opponents guessing. So, uh, mm-hmm. Fabrice, how about we go to the second uh, pro level strategy yes. that that club le- uh, level players can use? Exactly. So, so the, the second strategy is to build your point cross. I mean, this is a basic, very basic strategy, but we still have to know that when we play cross, the net is lower and you have more distance. So I start with an easy thing and, and I'm going to pick up an interesting example of a pro player. And uh, let's do it this way. So the example I want to take for the playing cross, building cross is Juan Martin Del Potro. So Juan Martin Del Potro, everybody think, and I'm sure that everybody who's listening to us right now think that Del Potro is better than his opponent. Well, he's not playing anymore right now, but was better than his opponent because he was making more winners or what I call provoked points than them. But stats revealed that the biggest advantage that Del Potro took against his opponent, it was because he was doing 30% fewer unforced errors than them. So this is already a first thing about Del Potro, which is, which is interesting. So he make on average the same ratio of winners provoked point, but 30% fewer unforced errors with the forehand and the backhand than his opponent. And he's the best example about the building cross. Two-thirds of Del Potro's shots are playing cross. So forehand cross, forehand inside out, and backhand cross. So two two times out of three, on average, he played cross. So this cross allowed him to put pressure to to his opponent and to play a safe target. And this safe target plus pace that he could put justified in a way that he was doing 30% fewer unforced errors than his, than his opponent. So, and then when he has the right ball, Del Potro used to go down the line with the same pace. So this is exactly the example I want, I, I want the, the good strategical example I want to, to tell you. So you build cross, they are, the net is lower, the distance is bigger. You can generate pace cross with safety. And when you have the right ball, you can keep the same pace, but play down the line. And, and this is the one, one of the things Del Potro was doing perfectly. That, that's fantastic, Fabrice. Thanks for that. So, so I guess the message here is to really go cross court until you get a, a ball that, that is comfortable for you to go down the line. Is that, is that correct? Are there any variations to that? It, it, there could be many variations because I mean, this strategy, I, I cannot say that this strategy can work for everybody. Let's say that, that one of the one of the player listening to us has a very, very good forehand. And maybe for him, it's good to go more with the forehand down the line, you know, or the inside in. Uh, but, but this is the cross strategies is something used a lot with the backhand actually on the tour. Uh, but I like the example of Del Potro just to, to explain how he was winning his match, statistics uh, with stats. And, um, but I, I'm not sure that this strategy can apply to anybody. I'm not sure. Yeah, but I, you know, I think this is a extremely valid one. Obviously, uh, I mean, you have data behind it, and also, uh, it, 
I mean, it's very common in the not. I mean, even the pro level too, of course, right? But as mm-hmm. you just mentioned, but club level especially, that um, it's really the the game of errors. And so, if you're hitting to a place where the net is lower and you have a more of a distance, so uh, for you to hit the ball uh, cross court, then uh, naturally you're going to make less errors, and so it's just going to, you know, uh, encourage but, but- uh, winning. <laughs> Yeah, but I, I would say that the, the cross things is, is really useful for the back end. We, we have to know that on the ATP tour and even at an amateur level, when you play a back end down the line, your chances to win the rally directly or after a couple of shots after, this, after the back end down the line is 46%. So 46% is 4% less than 50. No, the 50% bar is the... Is the I win as many points as I lose. This is 50%. So when you play a back end down the line, you have to know that your chances or the, the general chances are 46. So the playing cross thing with the back end is useful. With the forehand, as I said previously, is it, it, it's very effective to go down the line also with 54% of the points won on average. Thanks, Fabrice. Uh, very fascinating uh, statistics there. Uh, just curious, like when we're when you're counting all the 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 points and the percentages and whatnot, when they, when players go backhand down the line, like it's all sorts of shots, right? It's like if they're mm-hmm. being exactly. rushed and they're going for it, and also if they're comfortable, like all of those, right? Yeah, yeah exactly. It's, it's all the shots. Yeah, I mean, this is the, the global average. Of course, when this shot is played exactly at the right timing and uh, at the right moment, like maybe Del Potro was doing it perfectly, or Andre Agassi was a huge example of almost the same strategy as uh, Juan Martin Del Potro. Cross, cross, cross the right ball, I go down the line. So if you really master this change between the cross and the down the line at the right moment, it can be very effective, the down the line, also with the back end. Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s-inspired style and cutting-edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high-energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Thanks, Fabrice. Appreciate that. Uh, are there any other closing thoughts on this strategy before we forge ahead with the the third one? No, I, I think uh, I think we 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 talked. Uh, we went through. I think it's okay. Perfect. Perfect. Well, uh, thanks for that. Another great one. So I guess we can go to the next one. Yeah. So the the, the next one is is not a strategy, but it's something that you players have to be very careful with. This is the backhand slice. So just, you know, we're talking a lot about variation. And, you know, every time you hear the commentator on TV, they say, oh, that's a good variation, blah, blah, blah. So all the time, variation has a positive impact. That's what they say. But the numbers, they say more or less the opposite about some of the variation. And the slice variation, the backhand slice variation, is tricky one. So when a, a pro player, WTA or ATP, play a backhand slice, the probability to win the rally is 44%. So this is something that we have to, to know. Like, and, and to give you an, another example, if you win 44% of the points in a match, you get, you're going to lose 
6263, I think, something like that. So the variation with the backhand slice is a tricky one and not a lot of players win more than 50% after playing a backhand slice. So I wanted to take this strategy because actually it's a, a strategy maybe not to do or to be very careful with, with the backhand slice. So I, I'm going to take, uh, there is one example I give about this one that maybe some people is going to hate me about it, but all the time I use this one. Not me. Roger Federer, <laughs> sorry. Uh, yeah. oh, go ahead, so sorry. Roger, oh, sorry. So Roger Federer, after playing a backhand slice, win only 48% of the points on my study. So all the numbers I, t I give you are part of my own database and my own studies I made on these players. And, and for instance, uh, Federer, I have 500 backhand slice played. And on these 500 backhand slice played, they are not defensive. This is very important. It's not like he couldn't reach the ball and he played a, a slice on the side. This is not counted. It's every time I count a backhand slice, I counted that he could have played with topspin and he chose a slice. And out of that, he won 48% of his points. So the below, again, the 50% bar. Very interesting, Fabrice. Um, yeah, I, I I can see that. I mean, especially at the amateur level, uh, you know, or the slices aren't always uh, the most effective. Sometimes they float, and uh, yeah, that's that's interesting. Why why do you think it is that um, that the backhand slice isn't uh, as successful? Uh, I think on the tool, one of the reason is like now the, the forehand topspin are very improved a lot. Let's say that if you, so because they improved, they can easily generate pace on a slower ball like the slice. So this is one of the reasons on the tour, because on the tour, they executed well the slice. I mean, when you look at Roger Federer's slice, the, the shot is perfect. It's almost perfect, technically perfect. You, you cannot say that it's because of the shot or because he missed it. It's the consequence of that shot uh, at the pro level that they can generate pace on a slice ball. So this is one of the reasons at the amateur level, as you mentioned it, they make more errors with, with back and slice. So it's not so easy. The, the ball can float or float out. So, uh, and, and still you don't generate a lot of pace with the back and slice. So, I mean, my advice would be that if you, ha if you have the two shots, the top spin and the back and slice, be very careful when you use the back and slice. And there are two situations where the backhand slice could be useful, uh, effective, is the backhand slice approach. She got more than 50% of the points won. And if you can master it, the backhand slice, the short one. Then if you don't have these two options, you can only do backhand slice because there are many amateur level, they can only slice on the backhand. And on the tour, there are two players that all the time slice with the backhand. It's uh, Feliciano Lopez and Steve Johnson. And I just want to, to, tell, to, to give you the numbers when they do a backhand slice. So Lopez win 44% of the point after backhand slice and Steve Johnson 42 in my research. So I think I, I cover more or less everything I had to say about this backhand slice. 
Yeah, that is wonderful. And and that's great that you touched upon uh, those players because I was thinking specifically of Stevie Johnson. I was going to ask you, you know, how about <laughs> his rate? But it seems that no. he, you know, fortunately, he's, yeah, I mean, that's pretty, pretty low. You wouldn't think that, but uh, at least he's got, uh, you know, a good servant for and um, yeah, exactly. very, very. Yeah, no, it's very interesting. Uh, just curious, do you have any data on? You mentioned that the the slice approach is is more successful over fifty percent. Um, mm-hmm. Is there like a particular location or anything like that that it, that makes it successful? I think yeah, the backend slice approach on on, on the opponents uh, backend is the best. You know, we made a huge study on Stefan Edberg. And it turned out that the only size approach, the only backend he got more than 55% of the points won, or even 50, was the backend slice cross approach. All the rest, he got below the 50%. So I would say I would recommend definitely the backend slice approach to the, uh, to the backend, not the forehand. Because as I said before, now we have many, many players mastering the top spin forehand, and it's not so complicated to 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 play a uh, foreign passing got it Fabrice. awesome and one last one which i i'm just going to throw out an assumption is that uh it would probably be higher percentage uh, based on what you said to slice to the backhand rather than to the forehand mm-hmm. then right yeah yeah exactly to slice to the backhand and i just want to add another thing about the slice because there is one situation where the slice is very effective is on the first serve return. You know, on the first serve return, returning with slice is very important because you can put back in play many balls. So this is the only situation where the slice is effective on the first serve return, especially if you if you play against big servers. This is where the, the guys they they go they get good stats with the backhand slice. Got it. Thanks for being so first serve uh, slice is good, but second serve, you probably want to hit that top spin backhand. So no, the, the, the second serve return is better to play spin and to put pressure. Uh, then the position is, we thought that the, a close position to the baseline was very, uh, very important before. And now the, the latest studies I made is like a further back position, even on second serve return, even is more effective. So the slice, the backhand slice return only on first serve. I mean, then if you don't have any any other option, you have to do it on second serve. But you have to know this is not an effective shot. Wow! Wow! Very cool! Very cool, Fabricio. I think you need to to translate that book to to English at some point. I don't know what your plans are, but that would be pretty yeah. cool for us. To- I, I, actually, I need to find someone to. Uh, you know, in France, we're making podcast about the book in French. And I need I need someone to do that with me for the English speaker, and I would be glad to do it because there are fifty no not fifty we we made something like thirty to thirty five keys uh, for amateur level from the pro like thirty pro strategies that you can use at an amateur level, and we did that uh, with a French podcast tennis legend. And if somebody is interested in the states, we can do it this way. Yeah. Very cool. Very cool. Uh, really enjoying this, Fabrice. Appreciate it. So, uh, yeah, let's leap into uh, pro strategy number four. Yeah. So the, the last pro strategy is the forehand and the backhand approach. So when a shot is followed to the net, it becomes more effective. 
Um, to give you a, a simple example, the winner unforced errors ratio with the forehand on, on the Pro Tour is 1-1. One, one. On average, they make one winner or what I call the provoked point. Provoked point is like you hit a good forehand, the other one touch it, but you win the point. So this is 1-1. One, one. They make on average one point with the, with the forehand for one error. But when you use the approach, this ratio turns to four points for one error. So the ratio winners and falls is multiplied by four if you follow your forehand to the net. And the backhand is multiplied by 3.5 in my research. So just to say that if you have a chance, if you have an opportunity, follow your forehand and your backhand more often to the net because it will optimize your, um, your performances. So, and we have to say two things. First, when you follow a net uh, a shot to the net, it increases the pressure you put on your rival and he can just miss the passing. And second, technically, when you follow a shot to the net, the whole body goes through the ball. So this is more or less the two things that explain why a forehand or a backhand approach is more effective. Wow, that that's great. Makes a lot of a uh, lot of sense there. Putting that pressure in addition to the shot mm-hmm. and having that forward momentum, like you mentioned, um, is there a? I, I guess location wise, are we t- trying to hit to the the back end all the mm-hmm. time, or how about how about that aspect of it? Yeah, I mean the, the the pro player they can hit everywhere. I mean back and cross down the line, forehand inside out inside. But I would I would say that the most effective approach is the definitely the forehand down the line. This is the number one. Uh, then still a forehand approach is more effective than a backhand approach usually. But if you have a better backhand than forehand, so in your case would be maybe the backhand approach more effective. But let's say the the down the line. A good way to approach. And if we if we go back to the Del Potro strategy, you build your point cross, injecting pace cross. And when you have the right ball, you play down the line with a forehand or a backhand approach. And, and this is a strategy, no, yeah, a pro strategy that can be very, very useful at, at an amateur level. Fantastic, uh, Fabrice. That's really great. Um uh, are there any other thoughts on that uh, in terms of, um, I guess, the optimal approach? Well, okay, so let's go with this. Um, are there any like instances that you found where the approach was less successful? Like, I don't know, maybe depending no. on the location of where they no, were no, when they nothing. approached? Okay. No, there's nothing. No. <laughs> there is, you know, there is nothing below the 50% bar when you approach on average. Nothing. Every direction will give you minimum of 60%. I mean, this is an average, minimum 65% of the points on average, 60 60 to 65. You know, it's not like a backhand slice that the average is 44%. An approach is all the time over 60% of the points. Of course, it can happen in a match that you win less than 60 or 50% of the points, but it doesn't happen that much. And I, I also want to say a thing that when you when you follow your shot to the net, even for a player that doesn't like to volley or doesn't have any confidence in his volley, you know that I calculate that 65% of the time, you won't have a volley to play. Or you finish the point in a good or in a bad way, 
or you will be passed or you will have a volley to play. And the volley to play at the pro tour, pro level is 35% of the time you will have to play a volley. So this, for me, I use this, this argument for the, for the players who have a good forehand, for instance, or good backhand, but they don't want to go to the net. And I just tell them, your forehand is good enough that you won't have that many volley to play. So don't be so scared of the volley. But of course, if you have a better volley, that would help. And with a better volley, it will give you also the confidence to come to the net more often. That's amazing, uh, Fabrice. Yeah, so that, that that's really great because we do have a lot of players who aren't as confident in their net play, but uh, just the mere act of approaching, uh, it seems like, you know, two out of the three times you won't even need to hit a volley. So yeah, uh, but, probably but even more at amateur level. Yeah, mm-hmm. but, but still, it depends on your approach. I mean, at an amateur level, if you, if you do an approach like this, very, very slow, you will have more than 30, 35% of volley. I mean, we're talking about a good approach. Like you had the time, you settled down and you hit a forehand on the back end. A good one. We're not talking about, oh, I approach because Fabrice tell me to approach and I, and I play a, a very soft ball. No, we, we're talking about a good approach also. Thanks, Fabrice. So I guess if we were thinking about maybe like a 3035 uh they don't have as much on their approach and they're going to get volleys more often then should we change uh the strategy? I mean, how would you change the strategy in that case then uh it, it, you mean if you don't come to the net enough oh no sorry so like basically oh, if if you are not capable yet of hitting like a, a pretty solid approach. Cause sometimes if you watch like uh three or three, five players, uh, okay, yeah. you know, they might just hit the soft approaches like you mentioned. So how should they adjust then? Should they maybe not come to net as much then? Uh, then if, if they are very confident with their volley, it's okay because they're going to counterbalance the bad mm-hmm. approach with a good volley. So that, that could be one of the solution, but still, all the time when I talk about strategy, we reach a point that if you don't have the weapon, I mean, if you don't have the serve, the forehand, the backhand, you need the technique. I mean, you need a minimum of technique. And strategy is good when you all, when you have the weapon or when you, when you, in order to know how to use your weapon or your not weapon, but it, for the approach of the volley, it's good to take private lesson with a professional teaching you how to do it also. It's, it's very important because if you don't have the approach and you don't have the volley, I'm not sure that this strategy, this strategy is the best for you. Awesome. Thanks for These were amazing strategies. Um, and you know, I'll just try to try to outline them real quick here again. So the first one is, um, serve variation, uh, you know, serving to both wide into the T with a, maybe a 10%, uh, plus minus on that. Uh, and then the second one is to, uh, build the point, uh, primarily with your cross court shots. Uh, and, uh, the third one is, uh, just to be cognizant that the backhand slice uh, has lower than a 50% success rate. So try to top spin as much as you can. Uh, and then the last one is, uh, that approaching your forehand or approaching your forehands and backhands to the net will give you a significantly more, uh, a higher success rate and, and, and you might not even need to hit a volley. So are those, uh, correct? I just want to make sure I didn't, uh, bungle them. That's, that's perfect. That's perfect. You you got it. Melbourne, you got it perfectly. That's it. Thank you. I hope thank now you so you're much. gonna play. You're gonna play better tennis now. 
I I will for sure. I know I will. These are these are awesome strategies, and I and I love them, and I appreciate you uh, letting us know about them. Uh, I I know for beast that you also wanted to chat a little bit about just how statistics reports can really be used at any level uh, to improve any player. Yeah, exactly. So right now, the, the statistic report is more and more common on the tour, but I've been I've been working with any kind of level, and you know. Sometimes people told me that, oh, but at an amateur or intermediate level, uh, you know, a stats report is not useful because they don't have enough shots. They miss so many things. But, but I have to say no, that a stats report can be, can be useful at every level uh, because you, you will become conscious of your strengths and weaknesses with number. You know, no, the, the good number is numbers are stronger than belief in a way you know because they will they will tell you for real i mean more or less for real that this works for me and this doesn't work for me and you can really build your confidence with statistics and with a statistics report at any level you can as i said you can know your game style a bit better you can know your strength weaknesses how you win the point how you lose the point what works for you and what doesn't work for you so something I want, I want to talk about that at any level, the stats report are useful, not only at the pro level. Gotcha, Fabrice, uh, for sure. And I, I want to um, educate the audience on, you know, what, what you're doing right now, uh, if there are any particular services or any th- content that that you have that they can check out because i mean this is as we've spoken yeah. about uh game changing stuff so uh yeah just talk a bit about uh what you're up to and how they can maybe connect so yes right now we, we've been talking with data sci- with one of my da- one of the data scientists i work with to create a cheaper product that the amateur can afford easily and maybe in this report they won't have all the stats from the pro because maybe they don't need all the specific but but really i saw the, i saw the product we we made with this data scientist and it's very an outstanding product uh, it's a report of more or less 10 to 15 page and uh, very affordable so uh, and it's brand new we, we just finished it 2 weeks ago not 1 week ago and one of our goal now is uh, yet yeah, to promote it a bit more i mean i, I my my passion is the the top hundred, the pro level. But if I can help with these strategies to a lower level, I also want to do it because this is part of our job to help at any level. I think. Awesome, love it, Fabrice. And so, so where can we? And sorry if you mentioned this, but what what website or where can we go to uh, to uh, stay updated and to check that out? I still need to create the, the thing on my internet site, so tennisprofiler.com, uh, but it will come soon. And I think from my site, you can easily check what the product is. And maybe I will send you a sample uh, or, or to explain more in depth how it works. So I, I told you it's, it's brand new and I need to adjust my internet site, how to do it. Uh, or maybe we're going to have people like, uh, you know, providers uh, promoting it for us. It's totally new, so I'm happy to talk about this product with you because the first time I talk about it uh, in public, I would say, but uh, still, uh, I mean, there will be ways like on my site and on 
other providers for sure and soon. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. Well, everybody should definitely 100% check out uh, tennisprofiler.com to see uh, what Fabrice is up to and, and uh, to check that out, which is going to be exciting. Uh, so uh, definitely keep updated by checking out the website. Um, Fabrice, is there um, any other places that we can go to follow you, uh, you know, such as your social profiles or anything like that? Yeah, I mean, uh, Instagram, LinkedIn, Facebook, it's in a, it's always under my name. So Fabrice Sbarro, S-B-A-R-R-O, Fabrice. So, I mean, it's easy to connect with me. And uh, I all the time I answer to all the the message I got when I, when I receive some. So it's easy to, to get in touch with me. Awesome. Thanks so much, Fabrice. I uh, really appreciate it. I guess before we go, uh, any last words on, uh, I guess, any tips on data analysis or anything you want to give uh, as a, like a parting piece of advice to, uh, to the audience? Um, no, I, I feel like that more or less we covered enough for uh, the 30, 30, 40 minutes we had. There are still many topics in stats. It's just like uh, limitless in a way. But uh, but I, th- I think we, we covered more or less. Uh, I mean, more tips will be if one day I make that podcast in English, uh, I will have the 30, 35 tips. And more tips will be given with the stats report. But right now, I think we, we, we covered already four, which I think is good. Is it, I mean, it's a good to, that people realize that uh, how stats can be important and improve their game. For sure. Well, uh, Fabrice, I really want to thank you so much for your time. I mean, you're working for teams for the top players in the game today and really making a huge difference. And uh, I I can't thank you enough for these great strategies that uh, if the audience implements them, maybe just choose one or two and try them and see how it works for you. Yeah. I mean, that's usually how to do it. Um, Then then we'll, uh, I'm sure we'll see a, a great difference in your game. So thank you so much and uh, looking forward to thank chatting you, with you again soon. Me. Thank Thanks you very so much. much. Thanks. All right. I really hope you enjoyed my interview with tennis strategist Fabrice Sparrow and definitely check out his work at tennisprofiler.com if you're interested in learning more about what he does and getting more strategic information for how to improve your game. And I really would also appreciate it if you would subscribe to the Tennis Files podcast. I think uh, it would benefit you, you know, a good deal by getting all the episodes downloaded automatically as soon as I push them out. And it would also help the show a lot in terms of visibility and, and higher rankings and such. So that would be appreciated. I also would like to leave you with a quote, as I often do at the end of the podcast. And this one is by Albert Einstein. And Albert said, The important thing is not to stop questioning. Curiosity has its own reason for existence. Really love this one because you'll obviously stagnate if you do not constantly question what you're doing on the court and how you can improve, which is how a lot of people uh, get stuck at a certain level. So if you have curiosity and also passion and you're willing to work hard, then that's when all the magic will happen eventually. And it doesn't happen overnight, but it takes time. So you have to keep hammering away at it. All right. Well, with that, I will conclude this episode. So this is Mirabhan Aranchat from Tennis Files. It's a pleasure as always, and I will be getting more sleep these days now. 
thankfully, and I will see you on the next episode of the Tennis Files Podcast. Take care, everyone. Thanks for listening to the Tennis Files Podcast. For more tips to help you improve your tennis game, visit TennisFiles.com.